Hello, friends. This is John White. You are listening to Stories from the Revolution, and this is episode number 47. This is the fourth in a series of episodes uh, where we're looking at two concepts, two key words. The first word is revival. The second word is awakening. Uh, revival refers to a season of uh, sort of an outpouring of the spirit where Christians are revitalized. They come back to life in their faith. The second word, awakening, refers to people beginning to follow Jesus for the first time, a being born again, if you will. So I think when these two things begin to occur, the result is going to be transformation of the general culture. So that's the revolution that we're talking about in Stories from the Revolution. So what exactly does a revival look like? My contention is that we really don't have a very clear answer to that question because none of us were around during the last global revival. It took place in the first decade of the 1900s. So in this series of episodes, I want to be telling stories about what occurred back in the day during that um, that amazing season of revival, so that we can get a little bit of a picture of what this might look like in our day. <clears throat> and I want to share with you a report from a book called The Flaming Tongue, The Impact of Early 20th Century Revivals by Dr. J. Edwin Orr. I think I've told you in the past that Dr. Orr was one of my professors at Fuller Seminary, and he was like a world-class expert on revivals and awakenings. So here's a little snippet from what was going on in the first decade of the 1900s. Quote, on the New Jersey coast, there was such a revival in Atlantic City that it was claimed that not more than 50 unconverted people remained in a population of 60,000. Town after town in New Jersey experienced a reviving of church life. In November of 1905, a great awakening, so again, he talked about reviving, and now it's a great awakening. A great awakening was reported in Newark with churches crowded to overflowing and, a, and great processions passing through the, st the streets. So something amazing was going on in that day. And I'm sure that all of us, you know, would long to see something like that in our day. Can you imagine, for instance, what it would be like if the Spirit of God was poured out in such a way that not more than 50 unconverted people remained in your city? Um, John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So uh, awakenings, people coming, the lost coming to know Jesus, um, is something that only the Father can do. And it seems like um, he does this more in some seasons than others. And in 1905, uh, the Father was drawing literally thousands of people uh, to Jesus. So uh, it's amazing to even contemplate that, isn't it? But it raises a big question for me. And that question is, if that were to occur in my city or in your city today, who would disciple all of those brand new Christians? 
Uh, are there in your city today enough mature spiritual mothers and fathers who could take care of all of those new spiritual babies? Well, I think we know the answer. Well, that question leads me back to what we've been talking about, something called the Luke 10 Learning Pathway. This is a proven process. It's something we've been doing for quite a number of years for training and maturing spiritual mothers and fathers. In order to explain why I think that way about this learning pathway, I'm in the process of trying to identify for you about five characteristics or observations about this learning pathway. And, and these observations have come from me watching lots of recordings of uh, people that we've trained facilitating online groups um, as they go through the learning pathway. It could be going through the first step, which is Church 101. We describe that as sort of the, the front door. That's where people um, sort of initially engage with Luke 10, and then they go on to more training in the, uh, the leader teams and facilitator training. So I've watched tons of videos of this training going on, and these are conclusions or observations that I've come to. In the last episode, I told you what my first observation was. Here, here's the way I say it. The learning pathway is extraordinarily effective at equipping ordinary Christians to make disciples. Now, the key word here is ordinary. I don't mean ordinary in the sense of unimportant. What I mean by that word is that the people that are being trained are not like unusually gifted. They're not great evangelists or mega church pastors or any of that kind of thing. Because I believe that ordinary everyday Christians will be the key to this revival that I think is already underway. Somebody has said, it's not gonna be about the superstars this time, you know, big names, uh, great mass gatherings. Another way we say it is uh, in this revival, everyone gets to play. So the Luke 10, Luke 10 learning pathway is designed for ordinary Christians. It's not a complicated three-year left-brain seminary experience. Rather, it's practical, hands-on, experiential, skill-based training, focusing on training in what we call the skills of highly effective spiritual leaders. I was in a leader team yesterday, and, and one of the guys there who's getting involved, uh, who, who's already in our facilitator training, he said, what I appreciate is that I got to start practicing the skills right away. So you're not learning just a whole bunches of theory, there is theory, but then you get to practice. We believe the best education takes place when you get to practice um, the kinds of things that you're learning. Okay, I wanna talk next about some unlearning that I'm doing. You see in seminary many years ago, like 50 years ago, one of the things that I learned was how to construct a sermon. So it took me many hours every week to organize my thoughts so that I could stand up and talk for 30 minutes in front of the congregation. You know, that's what we call preaching a sermon. And I, I'm realizing slowly, I, I think I'm a pretty slow learner actually, I'm learning, I'm, I'm realizing that, that I've been doing kind of the same thing with these podcasts. The result is that I often get only like maybe a couple of podcasts, a couple of episodes done in a month. Well, yesterday, one of my friends in another leader team, uh, Tony Carey, who is in Ireland, one of my friends, 
he told me something that he's told me before. I appreciated the compliment. He told me how much he appreciates these podcasts. He said, it's way better than listening to the radio, which I, I think is a compliment. And he said, keep doing them, please. Um, what I think the Lord is saying to me is, John, don't worry quite so much about getting your thoughts perfectly organized. Just pay attention to what I'm drawing you to. Talk about that. So I think it'll mean being a little less organized and maybe a little more messy, but that that's okay because they'll be a little more frequent. Um, I think the Lord is, is sharing a lot of things with me. The Spirit is, but I'm too focused on being organized. So that's what I'm working on being more responsive to listening to the spirit and, and doing what he's putting on my mind. With that in mind, uh, what has my attention this morning is a great post on our Luke 10 Facebook group, which by the way, that's a public group anybody can join. I think they're close to 500 people there. And there's some great conversations that are going on. So again, it's the Luke 10 Facebook group. And this morning, I was reading a post by a lady named Melissa in Connecticut, and I thought, this is a great post. It captures so much of what Luke 10 is about. And so I want to share what Melissa wrote, and I'm going to intersperse a few comments um, along the way. So she started out, she said, I found, a, I found out about Luke 10 from a girl on Instagram named Kristen Lavalley. She shared her personal story, and it really resonated with me. And I just want to pause there and just say, uh, Kristen is a great podcaster, blogger, social media kind of a person. And um, I, I want to encourage you to think about maybe subscribing to what she's writing about. She's a great writer. Um, here's the link to her, uh, her, her Facebook page or her, um, her website. So it's Kristen Lavalley, all one word. Uh, so it's K-R-I-S-T-E-N-L-A-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. So you might want to go take a look at what Kristen is writing. It really had a big impact on Melissa. All right, back to what Melissa put on our Facebook page. She said, I couldn't be more thrilled to have found this community. You know, when I when I hear something like that, I think... This is what we call a tend-to-be-answer. It's, um, it's someone that the, the Lord of the Harvest, Luke 10, verse 2, um, has connected with the community. And it's so fun to hear stories uh, like this. So Melissa says, I, I couldn't be more thrilled to have found this community. It really has been so refreshing for me and my husband as well. We read a book called Pagan Christianity, around the time we got married 10 years ago. And the subject matter of that book really st stuck with us, even though we were heavily involved with a local church in our region. And I wanna take a pause here and talk just for a minute about that book. Again, the name of the book is Pagan Christianity. Uh, it's written by Frank Viola. If you haven't read that book, you really should take a look at it. Um, Frank makes a powerful case that many of the things that we have taken for granted, I certainly did, taken for granted, uh, in the church do not have their origins in scripture, but rather in pagan practices. This is an absolutely shocking concept. Um, for instance, there's a whole chapter in the book 
on the concept of the sermon. I mean, I've been going to church since I was a little kid. And every week in church, there was a sermon. So there was the pastor who stood up and preached, taught for 30 minutes in the pulpit up there. <clears throat> and when I went to seminary, that's what I learned how to do. And when I was pastoring a church, that's what I did. That's just what you do, right? I mean, that's clearly, it must be biblical, right? Well, Frank Viola makes a compelling case that our idea of sermon, listen to this, has no basis in scripture. Rather, it resulted from a high value in Greek culture for oratory. So picture this. Um, in the first century, um, this Christian movement is beginning to spread. It's beginning to move out into the Roman Empire, uh, all kinds of places. But uh, in the Roman Empire, Greek culture was highly valued. So what they were beginning to see was some Greek philosophers and Greek orators were beginning to be followers of Jesus. So naturally, they brought into this the skill set that they had. In Greek culture, oratory, um, and sometimes they're actually called sermons, uh, lectures, were almost a form of entertainment. If you were going to have a dinner party, uh, you might hire a well-known uh, orator to develop to, to deliver um, some sort of a talk. That was a form of education and entertainment. They had a high value for that. And so no wonder these guys started bringing that into the church. Uh, but it, it it's really a contrast to what we read about in Scripture. Uh, the, the New Testament practice of church is best described in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. This is where Paul says, when you come together for church, everyone, that's the key word, everyone has a word of instruction, a hymn, a revelation, tongue interpretation. Let all of these things be done for the edification of the church. So there was no such thing as a person who week after week after week was delivering like a 30-minute uh, oration. It just wasn't done. Um, and, and Viola makes the case that the sermon, which again, we think of as like a really important kind of a thing, has actually been in many ways quite destructive to the church becoming what it originally was meant to be. That is a place where everybody brought something. So if you, and here's the odd thing, I've, I've thought about this. It's almost like the better the preacher is, the more the person in the pew is, um, uh, is, is um, relegated to being passive. Because what goes through our mind is, oh, I could never preach like that person. I could never teach like he does or she does. Um, and, and it's so good. I love sitting here taking notes. I'm so entertained. I'm so taught and all the rest. But I could never do that. But the New, the, the, the New Testament church was a participatory experience where everybody was involved. There were no spectators. But what we've developed is church as a spectator sport, almost like going to a football game or a basketball game. And that simply was not true in the early church. So anyway, there's a whole, whole chapter in Viola's book about the sermon. There are chapters about the clergy. There are chapters about the church building. And it's really quite shocking, but he documents it really well. So uh, if, you have, if you're courageous enough, uh, I would encourage you to take a look at pagan Christianity by Frank Viola. All right, back to Melissa. She goes on. 
We have had hard conversations. I think she's talking about herself and her husband and have felt, have really felt that the focus and mission of the church wasn't necessarily bad at all. So again, they were very involved. These are not outsiders. They were very involved in their local church. Um, and, and really what she's talking about, I think, is um, that's the problem is what we might call a program-centered methodology. And about that, she says, quote, the approach in the church was just crushing humans in the process. That's a startling comment. But I think it's often true that the programs in churches are actually crushing um, humans. She goes on. And they were very stifling of the spirit. They were stifling of following the spirit of God and stifling of what gives the spirit life as we connect freely with one another. The typical issues you see with a very systematized, controlled, program-centric church experience. Wow. Uh, that's a powerful description of what I would call the old paradigm of church. Another way that we say that sometimes is man's best efforts to accomplish God's purposes. The leaders of the church that Melissa was a part of and that many of us were a part of often, almost always, are well-intentioned people. Um, they're committed to God's purposes. It's just the way that they're going about it is to use a, a man-centered, human-centered uh, programmatic approach. We think uh, what we see in the New Testament is really a whole different process. And the, one of the clearest places that we see this is John 5, 19. This is where Jesus says, I do nothing on my own initiative. I only do what I see the Father doing. Um, that's what we're working on in Luke 10, is always asking the question, what is it that the Father is doing? What is it the Father is saying? That's what we want to do. Um, and we're not, we're not tied to a, a particular program. No wonder 65 million Americans, like Melissa and her husband, have left a traditional church and aren't going back. And no wonder new paradigms are emerging as we're listening to Jesus. Um, by the way, this is what I talk about in the first three episodes of this podcast. So if you haven't listened to those uh, or haven't listened to them in a while, you might go back and take a, take a listen to one, two, and three episodes. A little bit more from Melissa. She says, we are still relatively new to Church 101, CO2, and checking in. I think she's like on week three in Church 101 right now. But she says, already I can sense how powerful it is to check in with yourself and those closest to you, such as my husband and my kids, as a foundation of really living out church. It feels really great to find the simple joy in that and to know that our kids will be growing up in an environment that values emotional health as a part of spiritual maturity. Wow, Melissa, couldn't have said it better, said it better myself. Just to highlight a couple of things she's saying here. First of all, simple tools. Simple tools that every ordinary believer can practice. Simple tools based around two rhythms of attention, connecting with one another on a heart level, first in your family, and then others as God brings them into your life, and then connecting with Jesus on a heart level. It, it's really that simple. And centered in the home. This is a basic Jewish value. We've said this before, that in Judaism, the home, not the synagogue, was seen as the, the center of spiritual life. 
And this was um, what early house churches were centered around. So Melissa, thank you for sharing your story. It's a great description of what you and your family are learning and experiencing. <clears throat> Our Luke 10 vision is a great spiritual revolution, which we think is underway, where there are hundreds and then thousands and, and then millions of households just like this. A benevolent spiritual virus spreading from household to household to household around the world. All right, enough for today. I'm John White, a little less organized, a little more messy, but hopefully a little more frequent. Thanks for your patience with me. Hopefully more in tune with the spirit. So thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad to be on the journey with you.